Make sure that a drunk person can use your app, says HubSpot UX engineer Austin Knight. In today's episode of Software Engineering Daily, I asked Austin what he meant by this and why designing for a drunk user is a competitive advantage. We also discussed why engineers need to think about user experience and how engineers can incorporate UX considerations into development workflows. Austin Knight will be speaking at the upcoming Fluent conference, and Software Engineering Daily is giving away a ticket to Fluent, which will be held March 8th through 10th in San Francisco. To be entered in a random drawing for this free ticket, send us a tweet about your favorite episode of Software Engineering Daily between now and February 22nd. There will be more details about this in the show notes. Austin Knight is a UX designer at HubSpot. At Fluent 2016, he will be giving a talk called UX Insights from a Drunk Guy. Austin, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks for having me on, Jeff. In 2016, why is UX design so important? That's a great question. Um, I think that it's there's a there's a lot of reasons that can play into that, but like a fundamental aspect of UX is that it's basically taking whatever it is that you're creating, whether it be a product or, or a website, and it's centering it around the user. It's user-centered design. And uh, we're finding that that's surprisingly, but actually not so surprisingly, a very effective way to build products. So it's becoming increasingly relevant, not just in design, but in the like the overall strategy for, for how you build a business. Like how do we ensure that our product is actually going to be something that people want and that they're going to know how to use it, that it's going to add value to their lives. And as a result, that they're going to retain as users or, or customers and help us build a viable business. Um, so it's a very friendly way to uh, create products. It, it's, it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's based on um, very sound psychological principles. And um, it's, it's something that although it's been practiced for in the mainstream for 15 or 20 years, it's only recently uh, really getting onto a lot of people's radar and, and they're seeing the impact that it, that it has on uh, the things that they make. You're very interested in user experience testing. How does user experience testing drive the modern uh, UX design? So it's it's a core component of uh, a greater process that I use, and it's just um, it's a piece that I'm particularly interested in because uh, of the amount of insight that it can provide to a product. So if you think about like the average UX designer, they'll usually have three core competencies. The first and absolute most important is a research competency. And then usually they will lean to one of two sides for their second competency, which would be either design or development. But most of them will possess in, in some capacity all three of those. So research is the core component. And there's a lot of things that, that go into the type of research that I'm talking about here, but like the two categories that you would be looking at are quantitative, so real numbers-based, like the what, 
and qualitative. So it's a little more feedback-based and it's the why. So we can use quantitative data to, to understand what users are doing in our products or on our website. And then in order to understand why they're doing it and to sort of pull it all together to translate it into a better design, we have to pull qualitative data. And that's essentially what UX testing or user testing is, is understanding the why, like actually talking to users and saying, hey, I noticed that you're clicking on this particular piece a lot. But I can't figure out exactly why it is that you're that you're interacting with this element. So what are you trying to accomplish when you're doing this? What do you what are your expectations? Those types of questions. And then you can use that to to form the design around what the user is actually expecting and trying to accomplish. So at 2016's uh, Fluent Conference, you're giving a talk called UX Insights from a Drunk Guy. And I've seen you give this uh a variation on this talk um, in some episodes uh, or some YouTube videos. Why why should we think of the average internet user as being drunk when we are designing <laughs> our products? Yeah, so uh, it's it's an interesting premise. Um, it began as a joke, and then I realized that there was actually something in it. So basically, what what the the drunk user testing or UX insights from a drunk guy concept states is that your product or your website should be so simple and so well designed that even a drunk person could use it. And that's not necessarily to say that like everybody on the web is drunk, but rather it is to say that if you can build something that a drunk person or an elderly person or a very young person can navigate and understand with ease, then the overwhelming majority of your audience is going to understand it with even greater ease. Uh, and you're going to build a truly effective product, at least in that certain respect. So there are a lot of um, fundamental concepts that go into this type of design. Um, but it's basically all focused around understanding uh, what's going through your user's head, what what they're experiencing, and how you can build the the design around that, even uh, if they're inebriated. <laughs> so there's a site called theuserisdrunk.com, yeah. and it's run by a guy who you can get to use your website after having some drinks, and he'll give you feedback from the perspective of a drunk person. Yeah. And it sounds like a joke, but at HubSpot, you hired this guy, and he was actually, like, really impactful on how certain design elements ended up changing HubSpot. So, first of all, like, uh, I guess it's worth asking, you know, before we get into this, what what is HubSpot? Yeah, great question. Uh, that's a common one that I get. Um, so, HubSpot is a software-as-a-service company based out of Boston, Massachusetts, and we produce marketing and sales software for usually small to medium-sized businesses, sometimes enterprise clients. Uh, it's all-in-one software, so you can manage all of your marketing and our marketing software and all of your sales and our sales software, and they cross-integrate with each other. Um, and as part of that, we, we also build our own website to, to support our software. We produce a lot of content uh, on our blog. We... Um, Produce white papers, ebooks, uh, industry research, all those different types of things, and we also explain our software on HubSpot.com, and that's 
what I am tasked with overseeing is I oversee the UX for our primary web properties, and they're visited by somewhere around five or six million people a month. So we get a pretty good amount of traffic through there. And my job is to understand you know, what's happening with those users and how we can uh, better serve their needs. So you hired this drunk guy to mm-hmm. use your website. What were some of the insights that you got after watching the video of this drunk guy navigating your web page? Yeah. So it really did just begin as a joke. Like we're we're really good at uh, producing like organic, high quality, and sometimes entertaining content at HubSpot. And uh, somebody in the company found Richard, uh, and he. I'd actually never really done one of these before. It was just uh, an idea that he threw up on the web while he was at something called Hacker Paradise. And it's where you a bunch of designers and developers go overseas and, and work on like passion projects together. And this was his passion project. Um, and then, uh, and then we decided, Hey, you know, I mean, we should, we should do this. Like, this is hilarious. Let's hire this guy to have a few drinks and, uh, critique our website and it could make for a really funny piece of content, like a great blog post. And uh, that we, we achieved that. It, it went viral and, and we got thousands, uh, if not, I think it was actually hundreds of thousands of people uh, through the blog post. Um, it was all over the place. And, but the crazy thing is that like, as I was watching the test back and as I started to interact with Richard more, I realized that there was really some great feedback that was coming out of the test. Like he he said um, some really honest and direct things that I had actually never heard in a user test before. And this is after running, you know, I mean, you, we run, I personally run several hundred user tests a year uh, with, and it's with a different person most of the time. And I had never heard somebody be so direct and, and honest and in a, in a certain capacity, so mean, but in a good way um, about the, our site design. And uh, Right. So to be precise, one of the things that he said was, quote, I don't know who your clients are, and he's navigating through the webpage while he says this. I don't know who your clients are. It sounds like you're looking for large-scale clients who are willing to spend money on buzzwords, yeah. <laughs> end quote. So this was like some really, really harsh but honest uh, UX criticism. So what did you take away from that kind of feedback? There were there were two key takeaways that uh, we got from that. Um the first was that we were complete. A lot of the the issue was actually with our design execution and the way that we were communicating who we were as a company, uh, particularly regarding the community that is built around HubSpot. We have entire uh, communities of HubSpot superfans that live and breathe our product, and that just wasn't coming out in the design. And then also around the uh, business impact that HubSpot has for its customers. We have around 19,000 customers in over 90 countries around the globe who uh, whose businesses depend on the HubSpot software for their marketing and sales needs. And that wasn't coming through in the design either. We weren't really showing um, how, how this software transforms the ways that people do business. It's it's not just a software. It's actually an entire methodology and a philosophy. We uh, invented the idea of inbound marketing and inbound sales. And it's it's a, a really uh, different way to, to do business. And, and it's proven to be extremely effective. And that wasn't coming out at all in the design. And then we also weren't communicating the direct value that the, the software adds uh, to these businesses. There's a, there, we have an MIT study that will 
basically tell you exactly how much money the software is going to earn your specific business in the first year. And that was on the site, but we weren't really telling the user to pay any attention to it. It was a little buried. Um, So we took this feedback and we iterated on the design several times, and then we ended up producing several new new designs that uh, you know over time. And we saw the the impact that it had on our site, and it was huge. Hmm. So this drunk guy he pointed out some high level problems with your usability, and I saw you give a talk about this. And as you drilled into these high level problems, it it sounded like you found much more extensive problems. Um, So what were the specific issues with the usability of the HubSpot site? And and how did you start to implement the criticism that Richard had given you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, It spanned across, you know, multiple different interaction points. And uh, from a design execution perspective, it's something that uh, we're actually still even working on. I think that the most transformative thing about Richard's user test was that it changed the way that we approach qualitative research. Um, I realized how valuable that really, really direct and honest and harsh in a certain way feedback was. And I, uh, I kind of got addicted to it. I was like, man, like, I wish we could get feedback like that all the time because yeah, like it, it made, we were able to translate that into, into huge design changes that, that push the business forward. But it was really rare for us to get that type of feedback. So, um, so I think that that's actually the biggest transformation that it had is like whenever you run user testing, you're always going to see uh, like you know our our homepage conversion rate uh, from specifically from homepage to product pages went up dramatically, and that's that's a key performance indicator for our homepage. So that was a win. We saw people were were using the search much less often uh, from the homepage, so that was a win. Um, there were a lot, a lot of different user behaviors, quantitative and qualitatively, that, that we were able to move. But more importantly, we're, we were able to figure out what it takes to scale uh, really, really high quality qualitative feedback in an organization that's over 1,200 employees. So mm-hmm. it's like, how how do we take this, this method of, of pulling out this feedback and scale it across our organization and then implement it with users that are sober. Like, how do you, how do you get that really honest feedback uh, that you would usually only get out of a drunk user because, you know, they're a little more relaxed or they don't care necessarily about uh, hurting your feelings or what you think? And, and how do you pull that out of a standard everyday user testing scenario? So that was the big learning for us, I think. And how do you do that? How do you scale this kind of feedback? There's there's a lot of different ways. And I think it, it takes a, a comprehensive, sh- it requires a comprehensive shift in the way that you approach qualitative research. Um, I, I discuss it in depth on my blog at austinknight.com. Um, I, can, I can send you the link if you want to uh, include it in. Sure, we'll put it in the show notes. Mode. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so I go really in depth there, but as like a few, uh, key takeaways, I think that one of, one of the first and, and most important things is that you consider how you're actually, uh, sourcing the, the individuals that, that you're going to be putting into your test. So you want to make sure that you, you qualify the right people to be in your test. So this, this goes into figuring out, uh, the, the, the high level demographics, which most people do. And then getting really creative with the screeners uh, that, that you run when you're actually pulling users into the test itself. So 
making sure that, that you have the right people, segmenting through those people, um, running the test first as a, as a pilot test to make sure that uh, you, it's basically a user test for your user test. And what you're doing is you've like created these uh, tasks and scenarios and a design that you're actually going to test. You put all this stuff together and then you run a single user through it and see how they behave in that test. And for example, you may find out that they get stumped on task number three or something like that. You can go back and instead of having every single user that went through your task get stumped on task number three, you can proactively fix that and make sure that the test is actually designed right and then run it with all of your users and, and get the quality of feedback that you're looking for. Um, your, your qualitative test should be run with three to five participants. Uh, that's a little unintuitive when you think about like the large quantitative tests that would involve 5,000, 100,000, maybe even a million users, depending on your traffic volume. Um, but actually for a qualitative test, three to five participants is ideal. Hmm. So, so there's a, there's a lot of different, there are a lot of different ways. Um, I think that designers should always be uh, paying attention to the user's behavior over their narration. So what they actually do instead of what they say, they'll usually contradict each other, but the more accurate data set is their behavior. Um, take any sort of tangential or unsolicited feedback and always record that. That's where a lot of the honest stuff comes out of. Why do you think that is? Why, why is there a conflict between what a user does and what a user says? It's uh, that's a t that's a tough one. I know that uh, Nielsen Norman Group have a lot of really good ideas around uh, why that happens. But my theory is that basically, whenever you ask somebody for their opinion, they're going to give you some type of an opinion, even if they don't really have one. Uh, so uh, in a user test, you are just like inherently asking uh, the user for their opinion because you're saying, hey, uh, you know test out this design and as you're going through it, I want you to do X, Y, and Z and then tell me like what you're experiencing, what you're thinking, those types of things. Um, so they're going to tell you something even if, uh, even if they don't really have much to say or, or even if it's great. And, and sometimes that can go the other way too. Like they may tell you that it's great when it's really not or they may tell you that it sucks when it's actually really great. But regardless, what you can always do is observe how they're behaving. And you uh, may find that a user says, you know, I just I, I don't really like the way that this is arranged and and they're they're complaining about a certain arrangement of a design but then they're somehow just moving through it with ease and they're actually accomplishing the task that you told them to accomplish. So that's a little bit contradictory, right? Like it's like, okay, you're complaining about the way that it's designed, but you're doing what you came here to do. So which what am I supposed to actually walk away with there? Yeah. Well, one one other thing I think is interesting is it's hard to get harsh criticism out of people. And and this was one of the lessons that you learned from this experiment uh, with the drunk person, or originally it was a joke, turned into experiment, turned into a yeah. uh, company-changing sort of event. Uh, but, you know, he was drunk, and so he was uninhibited to give really, really harsh feedback, uh, somewhat sarcastic, um, but, you know, you 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 know you've mentioned that Richard's harsh feedback really improved HubSpot. So, why is harsh feedback so important, and how can you institutionalize that in your tests? Great question. Um, the I, harsh feedback is important in any capacity of design, and that doesn't that's not to say that you know 
uh, as a designer, you shouldn't possess tact or, uh, you know, uh, or that you should just inherently trash people's designs or whatever. But the only way that a design is going to improve is by taking outside perspectives and introducing them into the design in a very direct way. Uh, so that's that's really how we um, that's I mean it's one of many ways but it's one extremely important way that we improve designs and that we create something that we know people are 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 going to appreciate. The ways in which you do that are numerous, right? Uh, I think that the 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 most important thing for organizations to adopt is uh, a culture of UX, right? Where it's like you're inc- you're encouraging uh, people within your organization and outside of your organization to to take ownership over the product and and to provide feedback on it and to to help you understand what you know what's actually happening. Um, but with with Richard's with Richard's piece uh, in particular, I think it came down to a couple things like. The first is uh, that the the systems that we use for qualitative feedback are broken, um, and they're those things. I think are are easy to fix. Like there's there's a lot of issues that we have with the systems that we're using, and even as individuals, as designers, we can fix those systems with a with a few tweaks. And then the other piece is that qualitative feedback, and especially remote. Uh, unmoderated user testing, which is essentially what happened with Richard is we had, he was remote, he was in a separate location and there was no moderator during the user test. We just gave him a bunch of tasks to go through and he went through those tasks and then sent us a video recording uh, of his test. That's like the standard type of user test, right? Uh, There's, there are a lot of inherent drawbacks to that as well. So those are a little more difficult to overcome and it's just a matter of being aware of them. So I think that part of it is just like domain expertise. uh, But the other is, is recognizing like, what are the weaknesses in the existing qualitative user testing platforms and how can I circumvent those in my organization? Mm. So a little more on this idea of harsh feedback um, how can how can organizations get better at encouraging uh, harsh feedback from the inside of the organization? Because, like, presumably, uh, you know, you could have maybe found a way to to get that sort of level of harshness uh, that you got from the drunk guy, perhaps from from people inside the organization. Um, like, you know, I. I I think about I, I I worked briefly at Amazon, and um, one of the things I actually liked about uh, Amazon was was uh, something you you see criticized in the that New York Times article that came out, mm-hmm. um, where people are are extremely critical of one another. Like it's like sometimes the criticism is just scathing, uh, and it drives, but it drives this uh, this level of of constant improvement that's actually really helpful. Um, and you know, it can be the simultaneously traumatic and, uh, extremely beneficial experience, perhaps, uh, traumatic enough to be an undesirable characteristic of an organization. But, (laughs) but, uh, I mean, you know, how do you, how do you think about that? Have you thought more about like, have you become more harsh in your feedback, uh, from this experience? 
Uh, no, just I, I'm just honest. Uh, I think that you can be honest about about the work that a designer is doing without destroying them personally. Uh, culture and a design organization is extremely important to me, and I, I believe that facilitating uh, healthy collaboration and criticism is is really important. But there's that there's a really fine threshold with that. But to to sort of answer your question in a little bit more of a broad sense, I think that the the first key piece is that there is a fundamental difference between uh, harsh feedback or feedback in general that comes from outside of the organization, like from a user like Richard, and feedback that comes from inside of the organization. I think that they're both legitimate in their own right, but it's important to understand the distinctions between the two and, and to recognize that the perspective uh, that an individual inside of the organization has is very valuable, but it can never replace the perspective of a user. So at HubSpot, we we all use the product. Like if if you go to my website and you pull up Tag Inspector, you'll see that I'm running HubSpot on my personal website. So I help design it, but I'm also a user of it. That doesn't qualify me to give the type of feedback that an actual user would give because my perspective is, in, is inherently tainted by the fact that I'm a, I'm a member of this company and, and I'm, I'm really deep into the product and uh, I have a, sort of a, a context that our users don't have. Um, so I think that that's the first piece is like separating the two. But then in terms of encouraging harsh feedback, I think that you have to create ver- a very open and transparent uh, and innovation focused environment, uh, which is something that we've become really, really good at is like figuring out, you know, how do we encourage people to, to, to provide this feedback and to innovate without also just like completely destroying our design process. So Mm. there's a few things, there's a few things I think go into that. The first is the principle that everyone is a UX designer. And this all sort of falls into this thing where I'm talking about like creating a culture of UX within your organization. If, if you have an understanding within your company that everyone is a UX designer, that's not to say that they all possess the responsibilities that like I as an actual UX designer possess, like they're not themselves responsible for the design. But what it does do is it instills a sense of ownership into every single individual in the organization over the product itself. So if you take, for example, uh, an individual in support that's like dealing with an, with an actual customer and the customer is having an issue getting from point A to point B. In an average case, the support rep would do their job and help the customer get from point A to point B, and then they'd log that maybe as uh, as an issue or something like that in Jira, and then they would be on their merry way. But their general thought process would be, okay, it's my job to help the customer from point A to point B, and then the issue that the customer was happening, having, that's a, that's a design issue. So the design department can figure that out and fix it. That's not a true sense of ownership over the product itself. So when you can instill this into individuals, you would see that the, the, ch- the shift that happens within the support rep or within the sales rep or whoever would be that they would say, wait a second, I, I feel a sense of ownership over this product. I want it to get better. I'm going to go speak to our design organization right now and say, hey, guys, this thing's been happening a lot. Like, let me help you figure out a way to, to help like, fix this. These are some ideas that I have. And then let the design org do their job, obviously. So that's the, f- the first piece is everyone is a UX designer. The second piece is involve your designers and your developers from the start. So even if a developer's work won't begin for two weeks or a month until after the project has started, they should still be in the kickoff meeting so they can provide ideas and also pushbacks for, for other ideas, right, that might not be as great. Mm. The- 
I've, I have a couple more principles if you're if you're interested in hearing them. If you think that they provide, yeah, please, no, please go. Okay, ahead. I, have, I have three more. Uh, the the third principle is fall in love with problems, not solutions. So it's very easy for uh, for us to as designers to fall in love with solutions. Like we see what our competition is doing, and um, we say, hey, uh, that's a really cool thing. We should. That's like really awesome. We should just take that and bring it over here into our organization and apply that to our product and. That that's that. But what you essentially did there is you just solved a problem that you didn't even verify existed. In fact, you don't know what problem you're solving in the first place because you took somebody else's solution to a problem that they may have had and then just applied the solution to your product without even recognizing what the problem was in the first place. So instead, what I recommend is that designers start with a problem and say, hey, what are what are the problems that our users are having? What are the issues, uh, the pain points and the areas of opportunity in our product? And then extrapolate a solution from there. And you do that through collecting through the entire uh, research portion of your UX process. So you're collecting quantitative and qualitative feedback to uh, extrapolate a solution that is designed in the context of your unique product, audience, and business, and not in the context of your competitors. Because even in uh, in my own personal experience, when you design something based off of what your competitor is doing, even if they're a direct competitor, their audience can sometimes be so different from yours uh, that that it, it's not relevant. The, the design solution is not relevant to your audience, even though it's relevant to theirs. Or you may find out that, yeah, they have like this solution that they put in their product uh, and it seems great to you, but actually right now you don't realize it, but they're scrambling to to fix that thing or to change it because it's not working for them. And here you are in your situation trying to implement this thing because it seemed like something that you like. So that's like a really reckless way to, to go through the product development process. And I think that instead of starting with a solution, you should start with a problem. The fourth, mm-hmm. fourth principle is to listen to sales and support calls. So uh, like if you have salespeople and, and support people in your organization, talk to them, interact with them. There's a lot of unsolicited feedback comes through there. And then the fifth and final principle is to get your hands dirty and actually use the product itself in your daily life. Mm. So within these uh, different components of building a UX-driven culture, uh, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of things. So, so what is what has been the consequence of driving this UX type culture at HubSpot? Um, yeah, um, not something that I've actually thought about too much. Uh, I, I think that for HubSpot, uh, it's there haven't really been many consequences, um, and part of the reason I think for the I, I think that part of the reason for that is because we are a company that was built on UX principles. So even our founding team, they, uh, they, they really, they understood UX, they saw the value in it, and they just built the, the entire company around uh, UX principles where, you know, it's user, user-focused design. And this company is classically like a design and engineering-led organization. Like that was our core from the start. Uh, so that's really ingrained itself in our culture. It comes out in our marketing and our sales interactions and our uh, services that we that we offer outside of the product itself. So I, I think that for us, there haven't been um, a ton of consequences because it was ingrained in, in our processes and it was in our blood from the start. However, I do think that when you introduce 
uh, UX methodologies into an organization that may not be familiar with them or, or may even be reluctant to adopt them, uh, there can be short-term consequences that you have to exchange in order to reap the benefits of, of the, the long-term results that you're going to receive. Uh, and a lot of that is going to, to revolve around open-minded, open-mindedness, uh, of especially of executives, like getting executives to be open-minded and to to support your the new sort of calling that you've taken on. Um, you have to completely check egos at the door. I think that that's regardless of whether or not you have a, a UX practice, uh, ego has no place in design, even though uh, it seems seems to be uh, readily available in, in a lot of designers' uh, attributes, if you will. But um, We've managed to build a pretty ego-free organization, and that's worked really well. And uh, I think that you have to be willing to um, accept some of the the political shifts that will happen when when you adopt a user-driven culture. Mm. Well, you know, one company I think about a lot in terms of UX design is Apple, and Steve Jobs was always talking about how to build products um, without asking for the thoughts for the user, um, you know, like, because he asserted that users wouldn't know or they wouldn't actually be able to articulate what they truly wanted. Um, and maybe this comes back to the conversation we had about, um, you know, users thinking one thing and saying another but um, what do you think of this approach? Is there ever an advantage to kind of blindly developing a, a product with, um, you know, kind of assertive uh, design decisions that aren't based on on A/B testing or anything? Um, yeah, I I don't like. I don't think that there's ever an advantage to blindly developing a product as much as we like to think that Steve was a visionary and that he just hired this magical team of designers that just sort of conceive greatness. Uh, it's just not true. They, they, they took a very calculated approaches to their design work. And actually, a lot of the stuff that they produced was already pioneered by other companies uh, in the industry. And, and what they were doing is they were iterating on it and refining it and marketing it better. Um, but I do think that there is a certain level of, of innovation and intuition that has to go into design, but it should never be blind. Uh, it has to be a derivative of some form of, of insight that, that the designer is uh, collecting and, and bringing to the table. So in that respect, I, I really, really assert that, that design is not art because design is it's a, it's a calculated practice. It's an, an informed practice and it's focused on the user and on the business that you're designing for and not on the designer itself. Design is not about the designer. It's about the user. Um, and I think that it's important to understand those distinctions. So yeah, uh, there there are definitely times where users will not know what they want. Um, and instead of sort of just saying, oh, you know, like the user doesn't know what they want, I'm going to just like, I'm the visionary here. I'm going to create something that I know is awesome. I mean, obviously, like people, you're, you're free to do that, but your margin of success is, is going to be uh, extremely lower than if you were to say, hey, like, let's run a user test. Let's let the user actually use this product 
and then figure out what's going on with them and then say, hey, what if we introduce this feature? What, how do you think that would change uh, you know, your experience here? You can, you can offer different ideas to them and, and see um, how, how they would react to that. I think that that's a, a really great way to, to go about this. There's like a certain idea that uh, in the design industry that like, you know, no matter how much qualitative and quantitative data you collect, nothing can replace like intuition and, and vision. I think that that's just fundamentally wrong. Uh, mm. you, you should always be able to justify your design decisions. But at the end of the day, like that is, that's the true value that the designer presents, right? Is that they can say, okay, I'm going to offer all of this justification and, and insight for my design decision, but it's up to me to interpret this information that I've collected and determine what type of a design should result from that. And that's where the innovation occurs, in my opinion. That's where the designer says, okay, I have all of this, this information and it's telling me this one thing. And I think that the best way to translate that into a design is this way. And sometimes that's going to be taking a little bit of, you know, creative liberty um, in terms of like in innovating beyond what the user may be able to even imagine. Mm. You know, uh, when I think about user testing, um, you know, th- there's there was this recent case of Facebook running these psychological tests on people uh, to see if they engaged more with Facebook when depressing content was served <laughs> to them on their newsfeed. Mm-hmm. This, this isn't closely related to to uh, HubSpot or the drunk UX insights, but given that you've thought a lot about uh, you know user testing and I imagine the ethics and well perhaps not the ethics because generally you haven't uh, well. I, I I can't imagine like you have too many ethical dilemmas when it comes to running testing with HubSpot. I could be wrong, but I mean, what do you think of this type of testing? It, it, you know, this serving depressing content, sort of like uh, um, you know the classic, you know, ch- changing the changing the uh, the subjects, uh, messing with the subjects uh, while running the experiment, um, perhaps question being questionable. Uh, what do you think of this? That's uh, that's a really great uh, topic that I I don't have too much insight to provide on that because uh, you you nailed it. Like I've never really been uh, confronted with an ethical dilemma in in any of the design work that I've done. But there are uh, a lot of UX scenarios, UX related scenarios, design related scenarios, especially data related data collection and analysis scenarios where you would run into ethical dilemmas. And I think that that Facebook study could very well toe the line of like, you know, where, like, how far do we go with this? And, you know, what, what kind of tricks should we play with people's minds to like, you know, learn how to make it better? We say that we're making a better design, but actually we're kind of manipulating them. You know, I've, I've, uh, I've never dealt with anything like that, but I know that there is a ton of good, great research and, and information and opinions that are floating around the UX community on that specifically. And I think that as the, the ways in which we collect data and uh, the, the types of data that we can collect evolve and get ever, ever more uh, intricate and, uh, for that matter, powerful, um, I think that that's going to be a, 
a huge topic. I mean, privacy and, and security are are major issues for users right now. They want to know, you know, what are you what are you tracking about me, and how are you going to use my information? And uh, I think that we have a responsibility to be very upfront and transparent about that, especially if uh, we're we're diving deep into psychological studies and and things like that. But that's that's probably something that you know with the with 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 the rapidly growing and changing technologies that we have, uh, just as we're going to have to figure out the legislation that accompanies this technology, we're also going to have to figure out the 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 corporate and individual ethics that go with it. But um, mm. yeah, I, I don't know because uh, UX is it's really at its core, it's essentially human centered, data inspired design. So it's a matter of taking like principles of cognitive psychology and quantitative and qualitative data and marrying them together. So sometimes you're going to get like these deep psychological studies and, and stuff like that. And it is a, a bit of a gray area right now. Um, I think it's it's up to the company to, to be radically transparent with their users and then let the users decide what they're comfortable with. Hmm. So we've talked about UX testing and I have some broader questions about design. Um, so, Given that this is software engineering daily, and most of our discussion is not really centered around software engineering, but nonetheless, I do believe this is an important topic for engineers. In your mind, why is this topic important to engineers? Engineers have massive influence over the product. Uh, they they execute the product itself, and uh, none of it would be possible with None of none of what designers create, none of what pro- product managers do, uh, none of the research that that we perform would would really be applicable uh, in any sense without the, an engineer to actually execute on that vision. And uh, in my experience, the best engineers that I've ever worked with, uh, and and most of them are are here at, at HubSpot. Uh, they uh, they. They provide a lot of influence on the product outside of just the code. They they understand the the research methodologies and the data that's being collected, and they know how to interpret it. They understand design. They uh, and 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 they can provide input on that. That's really a lot of the reason why I say, hey, bring your designers and your developers into the kickoff meeting, is because these people have a massive impact on the outcome of the product itself. And they need to have a seat at the table from the beginning that not only eliminates waste, uh, but it also uh, fosters innovation. So the the developer will will have a, a good sense of of design and sometimes say, "Hey, designer, this is a really you know great idea that you have here, but what if we did it this way?" Um, and and that creates a really great exchange where you have multi uh, talented teams from different backgrounds that will come together and provide different perspectives on things and and create a product that that only could be created through a collective effort of several or multiple great minds and that's that's where i think design really transcends the designer itself and the engineer is a huge part of that so as they're creating the code uh, that's that's a creative process and the influence that they have does flow into design and I think that's why this stuff is important to them 
you have your own podcast called the UX and Growth Podcast. Why did you decide to start a podcast? I, uh, we, we, so the, the, my two co-hosts on the podcast, they both work at HubSpot and they're in our product division and they're software engineers. And, uh, we, one of the co-hosts and I, we had an interview with Laura Klein. She's a, um, a, a really prominent person in the UX community and she was writing a book and she wanted to do a little bit of a knowledge share with us. So we did a call and we realized like for them, for one of my co-hosts, Matt, to bring the the engineering and the growth perspective and for me to bring like the design and the UX perspective, we we created this really cool dynamic and we realized that UX and, and growth, those are both things that we're really passionate about. So we started the podcast just thinking like, hey, you know, this is cool. Like we can bounce knowledge off of each other. We like talking about this stuff. Let's get together and, and let's talk about it. Um, and and uh, and then it turned into something that, that was actually a legitimate uh, show and an asset that, that a lot of people were, were taking interest in. Um, we, we've seen our listenership grow to over several thousand listeners just uh, through the course of, I think we're on our 16th episode now. Um, so it's, it's, and we haven't promoted it at all. It's, it's all been completely organic growth. So there's, I've noticed that there's a lot of passive growth in, in podcasts and that's been nice, but it's a really great way for us to bounce our ideas off of each other, get our thoughts uh, into something tangible and then share them with other people. And we've noticed that our audience engages with us a lot. We, we get the opportunity to, to interview people that are really prominent in the community, uh, in the design community and, and, the, and SEO and growth and everything like that. Uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a great way to get stuff out there and, um, to, to share some of the, the knowledge that we have access to. Okay. At the Fluent 2016 conference, you're going to be speaking. Uh, what are the discussions that you're going to be uh, leading that we haven't explored yet in our conversation? Well, uh, it's the, the entire talk is, is really based on the idea that uh, regardless of, of how ridiculous the, the concept of a drunk user test may be, um, there's a lot that we can learn from it and, and there's ways that we can transform our organizations through, uh, bringing in better, better, uh, user research methodologies, um, through executing on the, the tests better through using better tools, uh, through creating a culture of UX, and then also through proactively designing for drunks or for that matter for all users just creating designs that we know are going to test really well uh and that's that's something that i think goes a little bit outside of the user research part is like okay so we know the different types of tests that we can run the different tools that we can use the best ways to run these tests and how we can instill this into our organization but how do we know that we're going to create a design that will probably test well and i think there are a lot of different ways to do that and, and i'll be going uh in-depth on that as well throughout the talk. Great. Well, Austin Knight, thanks for coming out to Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. Um, I will see you at the Fluent 2016 conference and uh, remind me to give you a t-shirt while I'm there. All right. That sounds great, Jeff. I'm looking forward to it.